Welcome to Technically Minded, a podcast brought to you by Cordera. We get technology leaders together to discuss what's happening in our world. Our discussions are fun, lighthearted, and frankly opinionated, but hopefully it gives you a sense of what matters, what to pay attention to, and what to ignore. Today, we're going to pick up on the topic of MLOps. Previously, Jason and I wrote a blog series entitled Mind to the Gap, in which we asserted that it's not AI unless it's in production. Artificial intelligence AI or machine learning ML can undoubtedly offer step change benefits to most organizations. In fact, some that we've been at, we've helped with, GE specifically has saved industrial customers over 1.6 billion, with a B, billion dollars through the use of ML powered predictive maintenance. Highmark saved over $260 million just in 2019 by leveraging ML to detect fraud, waste, and abuse in the healthcare insurance group. And ML-powered recommendation engines account for more than 35%, 35% of all of Amazon's total revenue. So it's no joke, said differently. This stuff is really important. And as we've talked about on the last podcast, there's a lot of engineering challenges that go into making models in production. Often these aren't done though, which reduces the effectiveness and leads to a lot of technical debt. In fact, Google researchers call machine learning the high interest credit card of technical debt. So today we're going to focus on those challenges, some of the solutions, and joining me as always back freshly from vacation is Jason Goth, our CTO. Welcome, Jason. Thanks, Vincent. I would say I'm excited to be here, but I think uh, my head is still in Argentina. <laughs> well, how was the how was the trip? By it the way, was, it was great. It, it was, was a great fun. Trip, is Argentina yeah. worth visiting? Argentina is definitely worth visiting. Okay, so to the topic at hand, Jason, MLOps. If if I, as a data scientist, think about this domain, um, if I go back to my early days, is, is sort of actual hands on keyboards, making algorithms, trying to put them to production. It was uh, difficult, to say the least. It was hard. I, I didn't really know what to do. There were a lot of challenges here. Help me understand, like, if we just rewind the tape a bit, and you know me, I love to, to, to try and draw equivalents and, and uh, examples back from software development. Is there, is there a world, was there a world in which software development was kind of the same way? Stuff was being done locally on laptops, and then something changed they realize how hard, how hard that is and all the challenges wrought with that is there are there some parallels here and i'm specifically thinking about in that devops space like what did that what did that journey look like and what are some lessons that we've learned there that we can sort of pull over well yeah there are a lot of parallels it's why they call it mlops right to to parallel the devops story if you think back to the mid 90s maybe late 90s when things started really moving online applications went from something that you had to install with a CD on your, on your desktop or something like that. <laughs> they, the, the updates would come out, you know, every year or two or three into being online where, well, things have to, can move very quickly. We can update very quickly. We can be agile. We can learn and adapt, but we can only do that if we can get the software in production. And that was the problem. We, we used the same techniques of, of building software very manually, very locally, and then trying to get that into production was very difficult and with, fraught with failure. And so a lot of these concepts of automation, configuration management, et cetera, came up about how do we move things efficiently from, from a development environment through testing into production very quickly, right? In, in a matter of weeks or, or a month. 
in in so that that makes sense. Then it sounds a lot like what clients are calling us in today for. So so often I get a lot of calls these days with with clients who have potentially hired some boutique AI firm or some large conglomerate. Doesn't actually matter. They might have hired these people even internally, and th- and they say to me, "Look, Vince, I've I have all this data. I've hired these really smart these PhDs in math or statistics or physics or whatever the domain is. These really brilliant data scientists." I've turned them loose on the data with usually no business problem and insight here, but again, a different different podcast. And they've come back to me. They got lucky. This is a small minority that do get lucky and find something meaningful. And they made this beautiful deck and they said, I said, great, go go put that in production, actually make it happen. And And now it's 12 or 14 or 18 months later and I'm still waiting. Like what's happened, or or even in the in the minority case where they've gotten something into production, they're like, how do I scale this thing now? The service keeps falling over. I want it to go to a larger number of product lines or a larger number of routes, et cetera. How do I get that to work? Is that in essence the same sort of story that you heard in the original Dev World? Because I assume so, but it's exactly the same story, okay. right? So I love I love watching all the machine learning tutorials or TensorFlow tutorials or Keras tutorials. They get the mathematicians on. They have some data, they get it online from Kaggle or somewhere. They make all these cool models, they make all of these accurate predictions, and then they all say the same thing. Like, okay, now we'll just go get that in production. Right? That's what every <laughs> and then next we'll go, you know, they'll look at another modeling problem in their in and, their video. And, and so like to be clear, getting, what what they're not saying is like click a button and now it's in production. Right. right. What they're saying is like the rest is left to the reader. <laughs> <laughs> right. Someone needs to get this in production, not me. And that's the real problem. What does that what does that mean getting it in production and get it into production reliably, consistently and repeatably. So that's really the ML apps problem and and unfortunately data scientists are are brilliant at a lot of the data and, and math, but they don't are not typically trained as software developers. Or more importantly, they're not usually even in the software development group. Like they don't even have the ability to go change the software and put those things in, or the access to go change the software and put those things in production. Right? That's an, another team. Another team, which by the way, has another set of priorities with their own budget and constraints and deadlines and things that they're behind on and, and they're not really interested or motivated or incented to go deploy these these models now some that's not always true sometimes they are but you know for them for a software developer what's a model mm-hmm. how does it deploy right how do i use it right there's i've got to write some code to use this thing and it's probably not going to be the four lines of python script that you wrote in your jupyter notebook yeah well, and that's really interesting because my next question then to you is, is in the software domain where these people are trained as software engineers, of course, um, developers, that's what they do. In the early days of that journey to really incorporate CICD processes and DevOps processes back into the core workflow, was it that you effectively pulled, you, you got some other group of experts in that domain and you pulled them into the projects? Was it that you retrained the people who were already doing that? Was it some combination of both? What did that look like and what might that mean then for the future of data scientists in terms of how do we get that rigor back into the core process? Yeah, well, today you can pull some experts in CI, CD, DevOps, and automation, automated testing into your projects and help 
train up those teams and get the right processes, the right tools in place. And, you know, at the time in the late nineties, early two thousands, there were no experts to pull in. And so, yeah, they were, you know, there was a lot of trial and error and a lot of what you see today is the result of a lot of trial and error. I do think there'll be some trial and error in MLOps, uh, you know, before we find out what our good practices, I hate the term best practices. I'm like, does that mean you've tried all of them and measured and you know that this one actually worked best? You're saying it's just some local maximum, not right, global maximum. Exactly. Okay, fair enough. And so we're going to have to continue to to develop, you know, the tools and, and, and best practices around get, that. And I want to get to tooling in just one second. But before that, help me understand, like, where do people, where do software developers learn those skills? To your point, like, yes, there are some experts now. The average person hands on keyboards. Do they, do they learn it still? Where do they right, learn that? Right. Is it all built in, sort of codified within the infrastructure and the, and the platforms? Or So a big way that software developers learn to do that today is just by replicating what they have in front of them. Mm-hmm. And so most applications have some level of DevOps, continuous delivery, automation in place, and they replicate that right either directly copy it or use those patterns and and practices and tools and so you know they learn by doing and and they learn by replicating what others done which is by the way the way a lot of software in general works not just the, the devops piece as well and so again that goes back to the we don't have a lot of really good implementations of that from in machine learning for people to learn from and so you know there are some tools tensorflow extended has has some tensorflow serving layers amazon you know google the the cloud providers have some products to to serve them but it's not just a matter of serving right um okay i've got my model i serve it up well there's still something has to consume it it's a mobile app and a lot of times now they're like we want to get the model served out on the on the edge you know on on somebody's phone or on some device or on some, you know, in the web browser itself, you know, not sending the data back. Right. And again, there's products and in, in technologies and tools to do that. Like, oh, here's something to, to run it, the model on your phone. But still, I have to get it there. Mm-hmm. Right? I have to get the thing that runs the model on the phone. I have to get the updated model to the phone. And so those are all challenges that, that have to be solved. And they typically are solved by the engineering group because they have to be engineered into those applications. Yeah. So, so if I hear you right, I think part of it is that, you know, data science teams, the, the savvy ones need to tap some of the experts who understand this from the, uh, the, the various near domain, effectively DevOps, right? And, and sort of take some of those best practices, but perhaps rather than trying to re-educate, if you will, or in this case, the first time educate data scientists on, on some of these best practices, the majority of the focus early days should actually be on the frameworks, the paradigms, the the sort of reference architectures of how to do this well. Is that yeah. right? Yeah, I don't think that it's going to be really effective to go try to train up a, a bunch of data scientists as software engineers and deployment engineers and operation, you know, operational experts. Uh, I think we'll need to build that in into the products by extension into the the current deployment pipelines and just have the the data scientists be users of that we talk a lot about you know cross-functional teams having multiple roles on one team i think i think that there will need to be people on the team that take care of that and provide a platform if you will for the data scientists to use to then push those updates portions of that are what some of the 
cloud providers have have created with things you know like SageMaker with Amazon, where you can publish your models and, and it can serve them up. You still have to you know, interact with them, and you still have to. We talked last time about like, well, you might want to A/B test a model, and so you have to build that A/B t- testing framework. You have to measure it. You have to measure those things, and so all of that needs to get engineered in for the data scientists to use. Okay, so we've talked a lot about the people side of this, which is the data scientists aren't necessarily trained in the right domain, but we have people who are, and they need to be pulled into that process and part of part of the development process, but also the infrastructure around it and really the platform that sits on. Let's talk about like let's assume that those people are part of the project now. You understand sort of how you're going to deploy this someday. You understand you're going to get the data to some degree. Let's talk about the process. What does that actually look like from a process standpoint? If I just like kicked us off here a little bit. I'm imagining now a world in which data scientists say, okay, I want to start the business problem, which is, again, a different podcast, but let's start with the, with the actual business problem here. What do we have to actually enable? And then it, it's funny, actually, I'll tell an anecdote real quick. Recently, Jason and I were attending a, a conference by a tech provider, and they were giving a demo of their platform, a machine learning platform. And in this demo, it was, it was really demonstrated how easy and quick and fast you can build these models. So to Jason's point earlier, this person had downloaded some data from Kagalon's case, just straight to their laptop. They then opened this up into into uh, Excel, effectively, and, and started modifying a bunch of stuff. Column names weren't quite right. They weren't in the right format. There were some weird missing values they wanted to replace. And they should find replace. Really, really simple. And then they started, oh, well, great. Now that you've done all this work in Excel, you can just like upload it back to the platform, and we can go do a bunch of machine learning on this, and that's really cool. The challenge is, if you go back to our assertion, which is it's not machine learning, it's less than production, You've now taken the first step of the process and made it so that it's not repeatable. <laughs> there's no code. There's no tracking of what in the world you just did. You can't imagine a world in which you get more data in the future and you have to go do the same thing manually, which means what you, you can retrain a model anytime or you can go get do inference on a model anytime somebody's sitting in front of their laptop, downloads and does those same corrections over and over. And, and really the mentality in this approach is to say, look, uh, I, just like in, the, in many of these demos, I've done this thing now, but somebody else's problem to figure out how to productionize it. I, they have no record of what I've done. I have no record of what I've ever done. Um, it's prone to errors. It's obviously manual. It's not really production worthy. And so that anecdote is to illustrate the first point that I wanted to make, which is it seems if you want to do this in production, if you, if you walk in the door, assuming this is going to make it to production, you have to build a process that assumes that from start to finish, meaning every bit of data cleaning, every bit of feature engineering, every bit of machine learning needs to be auditable. It needs to be repeatable. It needs to be versioned. It needs to be transparent so that when you actually want to get to production, you have a physical record, or at least a digital record, I guess, of what things have taken place. Is that right in your, from your mind? Yeah, I agree 100%. You know, the the example about, well, let's get, let's get the data from this spreadsheet in this spreadsheet. I'll rename it. You know, we'll pull some of that data over there. I mean, that, that data gathering is the first step and somehow we got to clean that data and get it combined and all into some place where now a, a data scientist can go do feature engineering and do their analysis and that kind of thing. Well, that stuff needs to be automated, right? And repeatable mm-hmm. because let's suppose, you know, one of the, the things that is going into that is your sales data. For mm-hmm. example, you're trying to predict customer behavior so that you can predict what things to offer. Well, as customer behavior changes, which it inevitably does, you have to get that data in. Well, if every time you want to to make a change, you've got to go manually uh, adjust that, then you know you're you're 
your chances of getting the same answer or getting to the same answer again is pretty low and and it also adds a time there's an accuracy there but there's also a time frame perspective it just takes a lot longer right and and another problem is you know i actually have worked at companies where data scientists were on call so if you built the model that made it to production you were responsible for the uptime and reliability of that model and if things went awry well you better show up in the middle of the night and figure out what's gone wrong and i'll tell you that that process where these things are done manually creates another problem which is debugging becomes effectively impossible because you don't even know what data was used to train said model. You don't know if this was an edge case, if you had a bad sample. You know, in, in some future world, you can imagine somebody actually giving you poison pill, like the poison pill in your model, meaning like giving you bad data on, on intentionally so that your model does something weird. You wouldn't have any clue or any way to reproduce those things. So, so that's definitely part of it too, if you think about a total life cycle there. Now, in fairness to, to everything I've said so far, like the person in the demo did something very reasonable. And I see a lot of data scientists doing it. So it's worth just like quickly mentioning why they do that. In, in the answer is, it turns out doing data cleanup in Excel, for example, or Google Sheets or whatever you use is actually terrific. <laughs> it's really easy. It's really nice. It's really convenient. These tools have been developed over you know decades and decades now to make a lot of the stuff that we're talking about really, really simple. And so I'm curious from your perspective, Jason, like in the DevOps world, is there something similar where there's just, it's so much faster to not like create an ETL, to not actually create a table, to not write all the SQL statements, but rather to like find replace. Is that the same or have they have the tools sort of caught up and made it just as easy to do it in a truly repeatable, robust way as it would be to do in Excel in my example? Yeah, I think there are tools. I mean, you can do it. You can build, you can do some scripting even in Python and language data scientists are familiar with. There, mm-hmm. there are plenty of libraries to go rename column, you know, open Excel, rename column, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you can do that as a, as a two-line script. There are some tools. Our friends out in uh, the Bay Area, it's SnapLogic, have some tools that can, you know, uh, re- build pipelines to repeatedly update process you know transform data uh and and put it somewhere like in an s3 bucket that then can be used you know you don't have to do it every time you can then use it in that mm-hmm. clean format if you just have a way to clean things and detect anomalies, and it may even be another system ml based to detect anomalies and strip them out but once you have that okay well now i've got a clean set now that set of clean data the data scientists can you know go hog wild on right because they're not they're just essentially reading that they're not changing it and that's a big if you think about the whole process there's the gathering the data there's cleaning it and getting you know features extracted and and what you know other data test sets extracted and that kind of thing and then those exist as artifacts that then you can use for analysis now that analysis is going to always be very ad hoc mm-hmm. which is great because it's analysis go for it with you know, Jupyter notebooks, and I'm sure you prefer R, but, uh, you know, uh, then Jupyter or Python, but, you know, Julia, you name it, right? But then, okay, well, eventually we come back to like, we had to produce another artifact, which is the model. Now that artifact then has to be tracked and versioned and, and all of those things. And, and then it has to be tested, which is a, another topic we should dig into. Like, how do you test a model where you don't know what the right answer is supposed to be, right? So there's testing it for that it works 
and there's testing that it works correctly. Like here, I'm talking mostly that it just works, right? Uh, that it gives an answer, sure. not necessarily the right answer. Uh, and then we have to, you know, promote that out into production, which could involve you know, copying. There's engineering to to consume that, which again that goes to the normal software development, and then monitor that and provide that data back so that then we can go determine, okay, do we need to make changes, adjustments to the model. So that there's always going to be that analysis modeling step, which is going to be very manual. And I think that's fine. I don't think it's, it's those other steps that need to be automated and they're typically not. Yeah. That, that analysis step for you, data scientists or statisticians who might be listening, I think we typically call it like EDA or exploratory data analysis, right? And, and this is the, this is sort of the crux of it because you're exactly right there. So if you think about just the way we think about data as an industry now, we have these ideas of you have your your sort of raw data, you have some slightly cleaned up data, and we kind of give this labels of silver and gold and platinum or diamond or palladium or who knows, I'm, I'm making stuff up at this point. Um, but we sort of give it some value here. And I think part of what you said is like, okay, well, once your data is cleaned up, we can give it a good label of gold, for example, or diamond in, in some extreme case. And that's what we leverage. And I think the pushback from a data scientist perspective is, well, well look, that's awesome, and I'm happy to use that data. The challenge is that that data may not be everything that I want to use. In other words, there might be signals in some other data source that we've never explored before that I want to just see, is this actually predictive of the behavior that I care about? And so in the case of sales, maybe I want to get usage data that we've never looked at before. Or I want to get marketing data that we've never really used before, hopefully using marketing data. But but conceptually, there might be other data sources. And so, so then this challenge becomes, well, geez, do I want to spend all this energy integrating these new data sources and cleaning them for something that may not, in fact, most times probably won't pan out to be anything material and I won't ever use this pipeline again? Or do I just want to go grab some data dump conceptually, mess around with it, and and kind of explore? And, and this is where I don't know if there are lessons to be learned from the, from the DevOps space of like, that's really just like intuition and, and kind of an art. Is there is there any, are there any rules of thumb that you guys adopt? Like, when do you do something just locally in your laptop versus trying to figure out how it's going to integrate with the rest of the stack? How does that look like? Yeah, de- DevOps uh, engineers have an expression: "Don't do it twice." Okay. Right. Like, so if you want to, yeah, if you want to do it once, there's some data set. I don't know if it's going to work or not. Let me just go pull it. See it. Yeah. Okay. Well, there does some, look like something here. Well, that's the point where. I'll, where okay i'm going to have to use this data and now i've got to start cleaning it up i do you know in and cataloging it and, and those things like i wouldn't never do it manually twice got it okay that's a good rule of thumb i like that so so in other words if you have any data set the first time you do it great go for it just go grab it download it csv it if you have to i would encourage you to do some form of code sql or python or something not excel but whatever you do whatever you need to do in other words to go fast and figure out is there value here don't waste a bunch of time making it super auditable but then to your point the second you find it's useful don't ever do it again do it do it the right way the second then you need to go back and and i would even say redo it yeah okay that's good i like that because because if you didn't redo it, then you'd have to do it again twice. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> okay, so so now we're we're in a place where where we start thinking about the problem of developing models. From look, we have to have the right people, and that includes somebody who understands the DevOps. We have to have a process that, from inception, assumes this thing's going to make it to production, and we're making choices appropriately. 
The last bit here, and this is sort of the last bit of process starting to push into the platform or technology powering some of these things, is really around the fact that machine learning is is kind of unique in the software domain. I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, this is a little bit of speculation, I didn't actually research this, but it's my intuition <laughs> that it's unique in that if you build a data science model, and let's say that you built it perfectly, whatever perfectly means, you, you've modeled the, you modeled the problem really, really well, that's awesome. And you've done all the other stuff we've talked about so far. This is the only domain in which that model has a effectively unknown to you, but defined expiration date. Meaning that there is concept drift, data drift, these things go on, people's behavior fundamentally shifts, and a model that's really predictive today, at some point in the future, and you may not know when, but at some point in the future, that model will no longer be predictive. It will certainly not be as powerful as it is today. And so the other half of this that I think makes it unique is that we know from inception, if you change nothing else in the system, like you literally code free the, you, you freeze the code of the entire system, we know this thing will break. It's just by definition, it, it will break. And so I don't, I think it's unique. Is that unique first of all? <laughs> or are there other pieces in software that that's yeah, kind there, of there, that can't, that does still happen, but it's much less likely. Okay. Right? Fair it's, it's, and it's not guaranteed. I'm not as special as I think I am. Right. I'm not the snowflake. No, but and, you know, it generally <laughs> revolves like something like a, you know, a hardware failure. Okay. Or fair, yeah, fair, fair. Hardware does fail sometimes. Um, okay. So given that, given that the fact that this is a certainty, this is not like probabilistic, yeah. this is basically a guaranteed probability of effectively one, this is true. How do we start thinking about a process or a technology to start addressing that from, again, inception, because we know it's going to make it to production. We know that once in production, assuming nothing else changes, the data powering it, the model, the concept will drift, and therefore we have to update it. You know, that to me is all through monitoring. Like It goes back to the, the thing we keep talking about. You're, you're doing these things for a reason. We have a goal. The goal is to increase conversion. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, add new things, you know, cross sales to the cart, whatever that goal may be, we can measure that. Right. And we can start to determine, is this still working? We can see a trend line of cross sales are adding to the cart there. You know, it's 1%, 1%, 1.5%. 1.5%. You know, great. Good for us. 1.5%, 1, 2%, 2%, 0%. Right. Okay. Well, something, you know, <laughs> that doesn't look right. You know, <laughs> and uh, something has changed. Now and, maybe and it may the way, be, let me there may be some. Let me interject one second. Which sure. is like, I think I think you're a great example, by the way, and you can keep going. But zero uh, percent, something's not right. I would also say, and this is the thing that I think a lot of people are biased against saying is plus ten percent. Also, something is probably not right. If it's if it's been hovering around two and you see it go positively, I think we're we're too keen to ignore those things. If we still go negative, we're we're always very hot on top of it. But be equally cautious of things that look too good to be true. Sorry to interrupt. Oh no. I, no problem. I, I want you to dig into that because I'm like, that sounds great. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> no, but, uh, you know, if, if you do see these, you know, outliers, it's time to start looking. Is it is it time? And again, that that's back to some of the engineering. Well, then you need, as a data scientist, to see what happened. Mm-hmm. And those are, it, it's not just, you know, this is the conversion, but like look at the data and actually determine what was driving that change in, in be able to try try to determine what was driving that that change in behavior and so that's data that that you need as well and if you you have to design a way you know just like for developers when things go wrong we have a way to debug mm-hmm. right? we have logs we have debugging that we can turn on you know that that needs to be present for the machine learning and, and this is where 
you know how those things get consumed really determines what it is that you need to to start to do to log and debug you know if it's if something gets consumed by copying the model and you you have some code that calls it directly well then that thing needs to be logging it if it like goes to a platform and that platform serves it up via an api well then we have to have that that platform expose what it's doing and so there, there's no general rule about how what that solution might look like but it does need to be there and that, that usually involves working again cross-functionally with the developers and the data scientists to say like what do you need to be able to see to tell me if this thing isn't working and like we'll build that in that that makes sense to me and i think you know we have uh and we, we'll have her on we, we'll have her come and and give a more in-depth talk here amanda ashenbrenner is one of our senior architects working on on some of our ml ops reference architecture but to this point, one thing I'd love to dig into a little bit is, is this concept that we have in there. Because, because again, we understand it's going to make it a production. We understand it's going to break. We have to retrain. We sort of take that from inception and say, okay, well, how would we approach this problem differently, knowing that this is a necessary part of the overall life cycle of this? And that's really around this concept of a model factory. Do you maybe want to just talk a little about what, what a factory in general means in computer science terms and how that might relate to this? Yeah, a factory is something that, well generate something right <laughs> uh, you know build something out of some raw materials and so you can think of a, a software pipeline as like i've got source code and i build a running system like i take that code i compile it i copy it out to the servers right we, we'd call that a pipeline or a factory and so as we have these models like well those models have lots of may have lots of parameters with them we need may need to keep where they go you know to which servers they go we may need to keep what percentage of servers are going to try it out and tell those servers like you need to try this out and we're going to measure that and make sure that it doesn't explode mm-hmm. right in in production before we we roll it out more broadly that kind of canary rollout and so all of that metadata needs to be captured and there's a lot of process then then goes like okay well then let's put it out to the two servers you know out of the 10 which two with which parameters and that in itself has to be repeatable yeah. and so that idea of scripting that we call a model factory it takes and it makes those models as an input as raw material and updates the running system on the other side uh, with it we, we do need to probably get amanda to talk more about the the reference architecture but that's a key part of it for us and, and that's something that you don't see in a lot of other other reference architectures yeah, and I think the idea here is exactly like you said about the data initially, right? So we said, look, if you understand that you're going to be using this data on an ongoing basis, maybe to the point you do it once, that's fine. Don't don't repeat yourself. Don't do it a second time. When you actually need to think about it from from inception about how do we do the entire exploratory phase or the actual like first prototype of this phase in a way that's reproducible, the same must also be true for the actual training and ultimately a retraining of the model. So we're capturing all of the signals, all of the all of the metadata, effectively about what data goes into this model. What did we what did we classify again? Did we do k-fold? How many k's? All of that stuff is not only helpful when you want to go back and just audit some work you've done, but also helpful in order to let the machine basically retrain on its own. And so again, we can sort of automate that from inception if we're mm-hmm. thoughtful about what do we need to capture in order to understand how does this model get trained and what kind of cluster does it need? How many GPUs or CPUs or instances, how much memory, et cetera, uh, makes that entire retraining process we know is ne- we know we're gonna do it again. So we can capture that initially and allow us to do that really, really quickly the second and third and fourth and 10th time. And, and the testing of it. 
testing of it, you do want to have some, you know, separate data that you can test with separate from your training data and like, well, we need to do that. And we need to validate that this thing is, you know, looks reasonably correct before we then go push it in. So that whole from the, the data analysis phase to where we have something where we want to say, yeah, let's use the term, push the button, let's get it out into production or let's notify something we need to retrain and push that out in production. Like having that all automated is a really important point. And that, that is something, frankly, that I would not do manually once, mm-hmm. right? Like, because if you're going to get any value, that is certainly, certainly you're going to have to do multiple times, even to get it value out of the first one, mm-hmm. because you're never, the, the model's never going to be right the first time. That's interesting. That's a really good insight. To that point, it, we, and we've alluded to it a few times, I want to talk about like, how do, how do you sort of evaluate the effectiveness of a model? And, and really the, the element here that I want to captures the feedback loop. I think this is often overlooked for a lot of people. And they think, well, hey, we're gonna we're gonna go build a model and it's gonna predict customer churn, for example, or it's gonna predict which shirt to put to recommend you as you're checking out on the shopping cart. And those are all fine, those are good. How do you know if it was effective though is the part that I think people don't actually think through. And in the bit here, it's actually not terribly complicated. Doing it well is actually a bit complicated, which is how do you design really good metrics? And that's probably a whole podcast on its own. That goes into incentives and organizational alignment and are you measuring the right thing? Do you have sensitivity around it? There's a great article recently I just I just shared on LinkedIn that effectively if you're Amazon, if you choose revenue as a metric, for example, which seems very natural, like, hey, we're going to A-B test on revenue. That seems natural. I show We show in the math there that you actually can't even detect a, a $10 million change. Positive or negative, you can't even detect $10 million change to revenue. But again, my point here is less about how do you choose the right metric, but rather the feedback loop itself. So are you actually, do you have a mechanism to actually capture the decision based off that model? Does that make sense to you, Jason? It does. And my, my answer to how do we determine the effectiveness is ask Vincent. But <laughs> but I do, you know, what I, Vincent will need a lot of things, right? And, and what do you need to be able to do this, to determine if it's effective, to be able to determine if it's working, to determine if there's a problem. Like, you know, that's where we need to work together, right? Mm-hmm. To say, okay, well, I can build a way to get you those things reliably and repeatably, yeah. right? I'm certainly not the data modeling expert. You know, we can work together what the best way to mm-hmm. measure that is, but as the engineer, I can build you a way to get that metric, yeah. right? It's probably more on the data science teams, I think, to determine like, here are the things we need to measure yeah, I think, I think that's right. And I think that that really comes back to more often than not, and this isn't 100% true, but more often than not, when you're doing machine learning in production, it's, it's really driving some customer experience, whether it's just the right product or giving the right price or you know showing them the right sort of information on their educational journey, for example. A lot of that, most of that, if not all of that requires typically a different data set entirely. So let's just say you're doing something about pricing. Let's say they, let's say you're Tesla. They had, they launched a new product recently, right? It's, it's been six months now, but still relatively new around insurance. And so you can imagine that there's a bunch of people behind the scenes, actuaries and data scientists working on like, how do we price this insurance? And the question becomes like, great, we, we have a new algorithm. We have a new way of pricing it. Was it right or was it wrong? And in this case, you could, again, you could sort of measure it directly in some sense, but it's going to be in a different system, almost guaranteed going to be a different system. Like what are your claims data? It's probably different than what your actual like customer 
you know, marketing data or what price we showed you data was, right? Your CRM has, did you buy it? Some other data set in a different part of the organization entirely has that bit about like, did you get a claim? Did you not get a claim? What's the lifetime value? And the second part of that example is that the feedback loop there is slow. <laughs> it's really, you can imagine that people get in an accident pretty infrequently, hopefully, right? Once every few years. I mean, if I, if I develop a model that says, hey, I'm estimating how many times you're gonna have a collision based off you, Jason, and your driving behavior. My model says this, I'm gonna give you this price. It might take me two, three, four cycles of that to understand did I have it right or wrong. And if those cycle times are on the scale of years, you're gonna have no idea if that model's good or bad for five, 10 years, and that's not gonna work. And so that's where it comes down to the actual details here do get a bit nuanced and can be a bit challenging, but just thinking through how am I gonna measure this for real, I think is often overlooked. Yeah, I agree. You know, I was flying home from Chicago yesterday and I logged on to the uh, mobile app to you know get my boarding pass and I was like, hey, do you want to take an earlier flight? It's like $400, $500, $600, pick one. And if you're the lowest, we'll call you, you know. Well, how do you determine what price to show people? Mm-hmm. And what does the success look like there? I think the success probably looks like we paid the least, least amount of dollars to keep the plane from being oversold. Mm-hmm. And so... You know that's probably a, a different than, than most because you're you're trying to like how do I minimize this? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. Okay, so so again, if we think about where we are in this journey, we have to have the right people, and that includes people who understand this domain, and and we have to have the right process. That is, we're going to assume from day one it's going to make it to production, and that has some implications about how we design the system, what tooling we use, and then we have to have technology to enable this. You've named SageMaker, for example. We've talked about the model factory concept. How would you build all that in? And then ultimately, how do you measure the outcome there? Back to the original question, which is we get people coming to us saying like, hey, I've, I've gone down this path. It's not actually working right. And it's not working right because I think they've skipped at least one of the things we've just now talked about. Let's assume then that somebody's new to the space or somebody wants to try something different. They don't want to have to make the same mistakes everybody else has made. Where would you, Jason, suggest is, is, is the starting place for this journey to actually be successful? Do you start with the people? Do you hire them? Do you start with like the organizational structure? Do you start with the technology? How do you approach that? That's a great question. Uh, again, I think you, you got to start with what are you trying to accomplish? Okay. Right. And, and so many times when we see people that are, are struggling to get things in production and get value from them, they usually start with people. I have the best data scientist. I have the best data modeler. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Well, what, are, what problem are you having them solve? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, we're going to figure it out. Right? <laughs> they'll figure out one problem and they'll figure out the solution. Right. Yeah. That's, that's somewhat of an anti-pattern. I think, yeah, um, I agree. you know, you, you got to give someone a problem that you're going to try to address and measure the outcome. And if you do that, I mean, that tends to focus things down small. Like I think the problem with building all of, you know, a full ML ops pipeline or model factory and all of these things is well if you try to do it generically like well this will handle anything and any problem and any solution we're going to throw at it you're almost certain to fail that's like you're biting off a a huge chunk but if you take the ml problem itself and make it very small and targeted and we're going to just figure out the right price to make you get off the plane Mm -hmm. well then it's like a very focused ml ops solution or whatever like okay well we just need to figure out how to get this piece to the mobile app and get that result back. You know, all good architectures, this is probably another 
topic for another podcast, but all good architectures, I think, evolve. Mm-hmm. Like they're not designed, they evolve like anything else. And MLOps solutions are the same. They start small and they evolve based on the pressures and forces around them. It, it, I think it's very, it, it's, it's a, I'd be very wary of starting and saying like, hey, I know the right machine learning ops or MLOps or model factory solution to solve these problems. Let's go build all of that in the next six months. And then, you know, your data scientists will be publishing up updates, you know, daily. Uh, that's unlikely. That's unlikely when we do it with software too, right? You know, sure. we tend to b- build these things small and scale them up yeah. and let them evolve based on external forces. That yeah, makes a lot of sense to me. And I think, you know, the way that I would say it is, I always like to start with the business problem because it turns out, you know, we, we've talked before about keeping it simple. Like that is the goal here. And what you find is if you start with the business problem, actually you could build a really simple model that performs pretty well. And you don't have to have all this other infrastructure initially. And the beauty of doing that is you can sort of test and learn the processes. You can test and learn the the cultural and elemental organizational changes that you're going to have to go through here. And you can keep iterating. And by the way, now that iteration is probably funded by the first project. So you might deploy something as simple as like logistic regression, which requires almost none of what we've talked about today. But it drives real value. And you can do it quickly. And you can take that value and then reinvest it in making this more and more robust. And so platform-first approaches, I think, are tempting. And I think that a lot of CIOs seem to enjoy them and like them because they're technologists at their core usually. But it's usually not actually the way to drive material value. And that's true for for most things. You know, platform-first tends to be a problem. There's always someone that is there to sell you a platform, (laughs) right? That's right. Yeah, that business model does work. Well, well, again, hopefully this was helpful to our listeners today. I think we covered some good stuff. We'll do more on this topic in upcoming podcasts. Jason, thanks for uh, coming back from Argentina. I appreciate we missed you while you were gone, but it seems like you had a good time. Um, for those of you who would like to learn more, uh, please visit the insights page at credera.com. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join again. <laughs>